0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is a privilege and a joy to be with you uh, on our first Sunday morning uh, after after Easter. This is only our second Sunday morning altogether, and we are um, glad that you've decided to spend it with us and be with us this morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my privilege to open the Word and share with you this morning. So, if you're not already there, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one, because I do want to let you know where we've been and where we're going. So, if you've been with us the last, uh, really the last nine weeks that we've met, um, and then our first Sunday morning being last week, would you've heard is this really expound and lay down the vision for the sort of church that we hope to be. And so what we began doing was, uh, you know, months ago as God was laying this on our hearts, uh, my wife and I, um, Dave and Sheila Hahn, Adam and Lindsay Laffle, others, as we began to think and pray and talk about what it was that God was leading us toward, we, we began to try to think about what are those things that are so valuable to the church holistically And specifically to the call that we've been given that we want to lay forth in front of people to consider. And so we laid that out in an initial mission statement which says this. We are disciples of Jesus Christ, striving to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, community, teaching, and multiplication. And so if you've been with us, we we worked our way through those things. We prayed about those things. We taught about those particular elements. We worked our way through the idea of our total and utter dependence on Jesus Christ. The fact that we are utterly reliant on him for everything. And that ultimately led us even into Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. And so this morning, what we're do, doing is for the very first time, we're stepping into our, our normal preaching rhythm. Our normal preaching rhythm is that we're going to work our way book by book, chapter by chapter, through the Bible. We're going we're to begin to see this holistic picture that God has given us, and, and we're preaching that way because we do believe it is the best way to get that holistic picture, all right? So there may be one-offs where we address other particular topics or where we preach from other, uh, other texts other than the book that we happen to be preaching from in a particular season, but, but our bread and butter, our normal course of things. It's going to be that we're going to be working through books of the Bible. And so we're going to begin in Ephesians. We'll be in this book through August. And so before we begin this series, as we begin to kind of forge our way into it, what I want to lay out before you is that our heart is not only to teach you God's Word. We don't just want to teach you about it. We don't just want to tell you about it. We want to teach you how to learn. I want to show you what it is to read and study and understand God's Word. For yourself. And so, my invitation to you, as those who would identify with Disciples Church in this season, is don't just be an observer, be a participant in what's happening here. And there are a lot of ways that you can do that. I mean, the book of Ephesians is only six chapters, they're all relatively short. So, you could do something where you read one chapter a day, Monday through Saturday, set aside 20 minutes on a Sunday, and read the whole book. And that's really all that it would take you. But get to know this book well. Invest yourself in it, study it, because this really lays out what the call and the course of the church is to be. And not only study it for yourself, but also take this season to make your own opportunities and to meet with other people and to study together. I mean, the truth is we are in the early stages of being a church, and what that means is that there's all kinds of other demands on time between work and family and other obligations that we have, and so we're fairly limited in terms of those things in this season. But do not limit yourself to the formal meetings of Disciples Church. So take this season to get to know those around you. I mean, introduce yourself to the people that are sitting next to you, invite them into your home, have a meal together, talk about the book of Ephesians together, talk about the church, the calling, what God has laid, laid on your heart in this particular season, and work through those things uh, together. But here's why we're starting with Ephesians. We're starting with Ephesians because this is a letter to the church about the church. It's the circular letter, which meant that it was written by the Apostle Paul to be distributed to the churches, starting with the church at Ephesus, and then it would make its way and make the rounds through all of the churches in that particular region so that these people could together understand what it is that the gospel laid out for who they were and what God was calling them to be. And this book is split into those two primary sections. The first three chapters are really devoted to the idea of this is who you are in Christ, So coming out of Holy Week, when we understand in this very focused bit of time, the work and the person of Jesus Christ, that he is in fact God. That the holy, righteous, powerful God of the universe was so loving and was so committed to your redemption that he broke into the darkness of this world to pursue you. To live the life that you could never live, to die the death that you deserved, to rise again, showing his power over everything. I mean, that's the story of the Holy Week. It's the foundation of what the gospel is. And now as we begin to look into the book of Ephesians, we're beginning to understand who we are in light of those truths. And the latter half of the book is devoted to the idea of what then are we to do? Who are we in Christ and what are we then to do? And this book is so relevant for us on all sorts of levels, not only because it speaks to the specific time in which we find ourselves as a church here locally, but also because this book was written to a people who were educated and metropolitan. I mean, these were people who had an educated background. These were people who were uh, of standing in their society. I mean, when you think about where we sit in light of human history, in light of our, our position in the world, and in light of where we are even in our country, we are a privileged people. We've experienced all sorts of blessings from the hand of God. And much like the church at this time, we sit in the middle of a society that is pluralistic. All kinds of worldviews and all kinds of religions and all kinds of politics and philosophies that rule our hearts and rule our minds and rule our thinkings. And the church is to stand out in the midst of all that chaos. It's to stand separately. Separately. And so this book is written by Paul to the church that he planted to explain why Christianity makes the most sense of life of all of the ways that you could try to look at the world, understand our culture, understand the human condition, understand the times in which we live, of all the ways that you could think of to try to put a filter on the things that you see in order to understand what is happening and who we are, what Paul is going to argue and in an amazing fashion is that the truest and best way to understand those things is through the lens of Christianity. And not only is he going to say that this is the truest, the truest sense of the way that these things are, that the gospel is inherently truth, but he's also going to argue argue that it's the most beautiful, that it's the most satisfying, that it's the most compelling. And we can have confidence in the fact that Paul wrote those things because he's actually writing this from prison. He's in the middle of persecution. His life has been threatened. He has his own execution hanging over his head. And in the middle of all that, he's saying, here's how true all of this is. That if I live in this life, it is all about Christ. And if you take my life, it's just more Christ. What drives and compels a person to think, act, live, and teach this way? Well, it's the gospel that we see laid before us in the book of Ephesians. And so let's pick up here. In our story in Ephesians 1, 1 through 8, I hesitated to make the break there because what I want you to actually see is that verses 3 through 14 are one long rapturous sentence I mean, it's as if Paul breaks into song in verse three and doesn't end it till verse 14. That's one big thought and idea. So I hesitated to break it there. But as I was doing some study and some reading, I came across um, some of the writings of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Anglican minister uh, of the 20th century. Uh, And and as I looked back and what I discovered is that Lloyd-Jones, as he was preaching through Ephesians chapter one, took 37 sermons to work his way through Ephesians chapter one. So if we do it in three, I think we're okay. I think we're okay. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just stop there briefly because it's easy to read past that welcome is something that's familiar. But what I want you to see is that when Paul addresses these people and he wishes them grace and peace, he's not just saying this as mere words. He's not just giving this as a mere greeting, but really this is a benediction. He's giving them a blessing in this moment. And even in this blessing, he's declaring the truth of the gospel. So here's what I want to point out. I don't know where everybody in this room is today. I I would assume there are those here who don't know Jesus and don't know what they think about Jesus, don't even know what they believe about God or if there is a God or if there is a God, does he even care about me? Does he even know me? So I don't want to presume any of those things. But here's what I do want to say. To the extent that you are wrestling with Christianity, to the extent maybe that you've rejected Christianity. Be aware of what it is that you're rejecting. I'm often struck as I talk to people about faith in particular and as I talk about their worldviews and their beliefs. It's always interesting to me when people begin to make negative comments about Christianity and rather than getting defensive, I find myself wondering what's behind those comments. what's, What's behind your experience if that's your presumption about Christianity? And as people begin to kind of lay those things out and explain their differences in belief with Christianity and their criticisms of Christianity, what I often find myself saying is, yes, if that's what Christians believed, I would disagree with that too. Because when people walk away from Christianity thinking, oftentimes, if they've had a, a glancing experience with it, or maybe they had a bad experience within a church or within a, particular, uh, within a particular faith community, as they begin to explain those things, often their opposition is actually opposition to a distorted view of what the gospel is. So maybe they grew up in a really legalistic background. And their experience of Christianity is that this is just some code of ethics. This is just some manner of belief that is primarily built around the way that you live your life, around your behavior. And I would say, well, no, that's, that's not primarily what Christianity is all about. Is your behavior affected? Is your manner of belief affected? Absolutely. But the ends of Christianity is not your behavior. It is the relationship that you ultimately have with Jesus Christ. And so in verse 2, Paul, in these two words, is going to explain what the Christian life is. And he says, first of all, it's grace. Grace is that idea of unmerited favor. It's the idea that everything good you have in your life has nothing to do with what you've earned to achieve those things. That quite literally, everything good you have has been given freely to you by someone else. And whether or not you would identify as a Christian really isn't the point here. The fact that you are here today, that you're living and breathing, that you have some experience of health, that there are moments of happiness or moments of pleasure or the simple things in life that you can enjoy are just mere experiences of God's common grace to us, all the more so for those that know him. And second, peace. Which doesn't just mean that he hopes things go well for you, but what he's saying is if you're a believer, you have experienced true peace. That there is no longer anger from God toward your sin. The wrath has been removed. It's been put on Christ. Now read with me in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now what he just said in that sentence is an astonishing claim. And once again, one that is so easy to begin to read past. What he said is this. In Christ, the Father has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what he's saying there, he's not talking about heaven in this distant, far-off realm, the idea of a, of a place that is far removed from earth up in the clouds. What he's saying is, in the spiritual realm and the experiences that you have within your soul, you've experienced every spiritual blessing. And, he, and notice what he says. He says, in Christ, the Father has blessed us. Not will. This isn't future. This isn't just something that's going to happen in the future, though there is a future component to it. But what he's saying is, you have already experienced this. This is unique in terms of world religion. Because religions have a tendency to focus tremendously on either the past or the future or both. So, where do we come from? What is our experience? What got us to this point? Where are we going from here? What is our end goal? What's the final destination? But what's unique about Christianity is it not only explains the past and it not only gives hope for the future, but has a blessing right here and right now. Not only a hope, but an experience of the person, the nature, and the grace that comes from Christ. So one pastor said it this way. He said when, when Paul uses the words blessings here, he's not talking about well wishes. Well, the, the closer uh, analogy would be the, word, the Hebrew word shalom, which, which quite literally means every joy and benefit that your heart and your soul need and long for. That every joy and benefit that your heart and soul need and long for, you've already received in Christ. Now, how do, you re- how do you receive those things? Again, look at verse 1, in Christ. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in Him. Verse 6, in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him. That phraseology is used 12 different times over the course of 14 verses. Do you think Paul is trying to communicate something to us? What he's saying is it's not in you. It's not in your ability to believe. It's not in the right things you do. It's not even in your right doctrine. It is in Christ. Paul is saying you you, you not only receive Jesus as your Savior and your Lord and your King and your friend and all of the other words that we ascribe to Him, but, but when you are brought into the family of God, you are placed in Him. You're united in Him. And all through Scripture, we see this example of the way that we're united with Christ and the analogy that's often given is the idea of marriage. It's the idea of Christ and his bride, the church. It's a marriage of the people of God to the person of God. Think about marriage even within our context. And imagine there's a very, very wealthy person who goes out and achieves great things for him or herself and They start a business, they start a foundation, and they attain all of this money, all of these accomplishments, all of this wealth, all of this fame. They attain all of these things for themselves, and then they fall in love with a pauper. Or they fall in love with an average person. And then when that marriage happens... The one who has married into that wealth, married into that power, married into that experience, attains all of the blessings and all of the affirmations and all of the wealth, has all of the access of the other person. And that's exactly the example that we're being given here when he's saying, he's saying, look, when you came into Christ, it is no longer mine and yours, it's ours. It's that same concept that defines what marriage is. When you were saved, when you were brought into the family of God, you were brought into Christ. Everything that is His now belongs to you. This is what we talked about at length on Good Friday and Easter, so I don't want to spend too much on this, but I'll just point out that quickly that there's two sides to this. The first that we talked about on Good Friday is that the penalty was removed. When you were brought into Christ, the penalty was removed. This is what Galatians 2 says when Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when Christ died on the cross for your sin, you received the benefit. And God views you as though you paid the price. When he sees you, he now sees his son hanging on the cross. He sees forgiveness applied to your heart. He sees perfection and holiness. So if you've been around at all, even over the course of the last nine weeks, what you've noticed is that we constantly come back to the cross. We never really move past it. And that's because God's love for us is wrapped up in the experience of the cross. It is the constant reminder, it is the forever reminder of his love and his grace and his mercy. That his death and his burial and his resurrection applied something to our heart. And it applied something to my heart that is not dependent on God answering the particularities of an individual prayer right here and right now. In other words, I don't come to Christ for what he can give me. I don't come to Christ because he can make me happy. I don't come to Christ because he can make me wealthy. I don't come to Christ because he can give me good things. No, I come to Christ for Christ. Christ came to me to give himself to me. That God's love is bound up in Jesus Christ, in the cross and in the resurrection. See, our love is secure in the cross. It is permanent, unmovable. So the reason we constantly come back to the cross is because it's all we've got. And what he's saying in Galatians chapter 2 is if the, it's, it's as if that old man that defined you, that life before Christ, your sinful nature and everything that's broken about your heart, it's as if all of your sins in that moment were nailed into the body of Jesus Christ. And that because of that, all of the benefits are applied to you. The penalty has been removed that leads to the second idea that the blessing was added. This is what Romans chapter 6 says. It says, not only have we, have we experienced the death of the old person in the body of Jesus Christ, but we've also been united in his resurrection. So, that, so Jesus was treated the way that you deserved, and therefore you can be treated the way that Jesus deserved. It's what we sang about earlier. So when we sang that idea of come awake, come awake, That the promise of your eternal life is in the fact that on the cross you died with Jesus Christ and in his resurrection you rose again with him. You receive all the benefits that only Jesus deserves. That everything he has is yours. And as if that's not enough, Paul, Paul defines these blessings, these spiritual blessings. And what he's saying is not just that these are blessings that are applied to your spirit, but he's saying that these are blessings that are applied from the spirit. What you see here is really a Trinitarian doctrine. He's saying in in these first four verses, you have the experience of God the Father pursuing us and loving us and chasing us down and saving our souls and pouring his love out on us through Jesus Christ. And then applying to our hearts spiritual blessings, quite literally blessings from the Holy Spirit that when we're brought into the family of God we receive a new life through Christ in the or rather in Christ through the holy spirit that the holy spirit now indwells us. Romans 8 says that he cries out on our behalf he prays for us. He convicts us, he encourages us, he uplifts us. That every blessing of the holy spirit is given to us by the father if we are in the son. Isn't that amazing? Two verses. And we're not even scratching the surface of what's here. And how are you brought into him? Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What Paul's describing here is the process of God selecting a people For himself. Both Peter and James and their books are going to say that these are a select group of people that God has called out of the world to himself, that this is going to be his church. And when the word chose is used here, this is God setting his love on his family, he is setting apart a family for himself. Now, I don't know where your mind goes when you hear a verse like this. For some people, that idea of God choosing sounds unfair. What do you mean God chooses? What does that mean? Explain that more. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to dive into that concept more. Your, Your mind might race to a time when you were a kid where you weren't chosen for a team and you felt bad. Maybe you weren't given that job because the boss didn't think that you met all the qualifications and so they passed you over but here's the beauty of God's choosing. We're told in this moment that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And what that means is that God's choosing is independent of anyone's merit or accomplishment. His choosing of you as his child had nothing to do with anything you would be or anything you would accomplish. Now just begin to think about the implications of that. Because for those of you who are moral overachievers, For those of you who are the letter of the law, checklist-style Christianity-type people, for those of you who are rule followers by nature, what this means is you don't get to be proud about the fact that you know Jesus Christ. He has ripped that from his hands, and what he said is, no, 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 before you ever existed, before you ever did anything, before you could even pretend that you were pursuing me, I had already pursued you and chosen you and called you to myself. I had set my love, set my affection, set my purposeful will on your life. I had set you apart to me. And the flip side of that coin is that for those of you who are self-admitted moral failures, For those of you whose lives have been a mess or try as you might, you have continually been caught up in addictions, in brokenness, in wickedness, in sin. What this means for you is that despite all of those things, God knew you before time, knew the life you would live, knew the past that lies behind you right now, knows the mess in which you're sitting And still, for some reason, decided to set his love on you. What kind of a comfort is that? What kind of a balm to the soul is it that God would know what a screw-up I would be and still love me? See, if God chose you because you're good or because you were born into the right family or because you had the right skill sets, then you get to take some sort of credit for what he did in your life. But what's amazing about God is he didn't look through the annals of time and say, well, there's a guy with just the right skill sets. There's a guy who can accomplish a lot, and if I can just bring him onto my team, imagine the things I could accomplish through that guy. Well, there's a woman who everybody likes, and she's got her act together, and she knows what she's doing, and she's strong, and she's confident, and she's likable, Imagine what I could do if I saved her to myself. No, what you see in Scripture is a long line of people who cannot get their act together and God says, I am going to choose you to bring others to myself. Why? So that everybody will realize that it was just me that was doing it in you. I mean, this is what Paul indicates when he says in verses 5 and 6 that you are saved to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. What he's saying is, I'm going to do a work in you so that everyone will see me through it. It's the kind of person where you go, that guy? You're going to save that guy. Do you know what that guy's done? Do you know his background? Do you know how unable he is to get his life together? And God says, yeah, that's the person I'm going to use so that everybody knows that it's me behind it. Here's why this is so near and dear to Paul's heart. He writes in Galatians 6, verse 14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision, in other words, your, your ability to obey the law and do the right thing, to be born into the right family, all of those things that might set you apart as good, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision but a new creation. Now, why does Paul care about this doctrine of election so much? He cares about it because he experienced it in an unbelievable way. I mean, if you know the story of Paul, before his name was Paul, his name was Saul. He, he was born into the right family. We're told that he was born into the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, he was considered blameless. The Bible is going to say that on any resume, this guy looked great. He had it all together. He was doing all the right things. He was the perfect Jew. He was moving quickly up the ranks of the Pharisees. In fact, we're told that at the murder of the first deacon of the church in Acts chapter 7 and 8, it was Paul who stood there and, and, and watched over the coats of the other Pharisees as they gathered up stones to murder this man who was a deacon of the church. We're told at one point that that, that Saul was on his way to Damascus and the reason he was headed there is because he had heard that there were followers of the way, that there were Christians in that place gathering and his intention was to go to that place and to murder Christians and imprison men and women and put children in jail and into, into other difficult circumstances because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And in the middle of his hatred for Jesus in the middle of his desire to snuff out the name of Christ, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, knocks him to the ground and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The moment Jesus reveals himself to Saul, Saul's heart is instantly turned and he becomes a follower of Christ. So what did Saul do to pursue Jesus? Nothing. I mean, Paul appreciates more than anyone the Christian doctrine of election because apart from God striking him down and saving his soul, he wouldn't have been the one sitting in prison writing the book of Ephesians. He would have been the one sending others to prison for their faith in Christ. What is it that allows Paul to, be, to become the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen? the understanding that it had nothing to do with him. So you see Paul in his early years writing uh, writing these letters to the churches and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. then a few years later, he writes another book to another church and he says, Paul, the least of all the apostles. And a few years later, you see Paul and he says, I am the least of all Christians. And finally, towards the end of his life, you see Paul writing and he says, I am the chief of all sinners. Now, by any meaningful measure, Paul was growing more and more in his Christ-likeness. He was knowing Jesus better and deeper in a newfound ways, and yet he identifies his need for Christ even greater. So how does this man who had murdered and imprisoned Christians sit here and not be in despair and in self-loathing and in self-hatred and regret? Because the gospel is the end of self loathing. God the Father knows everything about you and still brought you into his family. See, God is always the initiator and we are always the responders. And what that does in us is create in us a humility. So when I realize that for no reason other than his good pleasure, he saved me, I don't get to brag anymore, but I instead get to boast in his goodness. But not only did he save you, we're told that he he set you apart to be holy and blameless before him. So, So what this means is that God is so committed to not only pursuing us and pouring out on his love on us, but also he's so committed to our holiness that he decreed us to be a holy people and predetermined that we would end up that way. What a beautiful thing. God didn't just save you to make you a Christian and then tell you to figure it out. He set you apart for something. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul uses this incredible word when he says we are his workmanship. The Greek word that he uses there is the word poema. It's where we get our word poem. It's 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 as if your life is this epic poem that God is in the middle of writing. That that potential is available to everyone that knows Christ. And that there is a day coming when we will be like Jesus because we'll see him as he is. But understand this, it takes your whole life to begin to see how these spiritual benefits play out. And it's what the Bible is going to call sanctification. The process of becoming like Christ. So for our purposes this morning, here's how I'm going to define sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which your life begins to match your identity who you are in Christ is already set. The blessings have already been applied. When he sees you, he sees you in perfection and righteousness as he sees his own son. And the process of sanctification is that your life begins to fall in line with what God has already declared to be true about you. So what are the spiritual blessings? We could go on for days, but we'll just list two that are in this passage. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So here's what he means. He says, so before time, God chose you and he predestined you, that he destined your life, he puts you on a path, and he says, and what he, what he predestined you towards is adoption. Now, that word adoption is a beautiful, beautiful word. It's one of the most amazing illustrations in all of Scripture. It's the reason why our hearts sing when people that we know adopt children into their families. Because whether or not we realize it, it is a reflection of what God does when he brings us into his family. It's the idea that God is not just your king, he is your father. Do you know what it is to be a child of the king? It means you have unfettered access That's why, generally speaking, most of you wouldn't call me late at night. You wouldn't want to wake me up. You wouldn't want to bother me. But my son, he just walks right into my bedroom. And he doesn't care if I'm sleeping. He doesn't care if I feel well or if I don't. He just comes right in in the middle of the night because he needs a glass of water. Or he wants me to come tuck him in. It's the reason why as I was writing this sermon the other night, my son came out, I was sitting on the back deck, and my son came out and said, Dad, we're going to go to bed soon. Do you want to come read a story? And I said, yep. Why? Because I love to be with my son. My time with my boys is so precious to me because I love experiencing them. I love knowing them. And they know. They have unfettered access to Dad. Now, if me as as a broken and sinful individual, if I... If I have that sort of love and appreciation for my time with my kids, how much more does a heavenly, perfect, loving father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing? How much more does he enjoy being with us? Not only does it say we're adopted, but it says we're adopted as sons. And some might immediately ask, "Well, what about women?" This is another one of those things where culturally there's a disconnect because in the middle of using this phrase where he says that we collectively as the church are adopted as sons, what Paul was actually doing was giving the most inclusive statement that he could possibly give the church. What he was saying is, is that you haven't just been adopted into the family, but all of you, men or women within this Roman culture, you've been adopted in as sons, which means that you have the same, you have the same inheritance legally as anyone else might. Because in this society where, where, where women were largely devalued, uh, sons received an inheritance, women did not. And so for Paul to say to the church, you have been adopted in as sons collectively, was to say, regardless of your gender, regardless of your status, regardless of of where you find yourself, and the applications are unending. you You could begin talking about ethnicity, or you could begin talking about race, or you could begin talking about class, or money, or whatever other delineator that you would want to draw out. What Paul is saying is, in Christ, there's this equality. Sonship. Legal standing. You have the same inheritance. And and whom do you have the same inheritance as? Christ. It's what leads Jesus to say that he's not ashamed to be called brother with us. That you're going to inherit the world, the new heavens, the new earth, that we're going to be joint heirs with Christ. And because he's your father, he is long-suffering. And you will never be Lose your sonship. That's where Paul writes elsewhere. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. It's one of the first blessings, adoption. Look at the second one, verse 7. And then we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And when he uses that word redemption, we're so used to using that in a theological sense and we use that word rightly. But what he's actually talking about here with the word redemption, this is the same word that's used for ransoming slaves. He's not just saying that he brought you out of something. What he's saying is is that a price was paid to buy you out of slavery. That when Jesus Christ went to the cross and shed his blood, what he was doing is he was purchasing your freedom. Not just paying a debt, but making you free. It's a release from slavery. A release from the slavery of our sins. A release from the slavery of the law and religion. A release from the slavery and expectations of our own minds or that of our family or our culture. Freedom. And how did Jesus bring this redemption? Through his blood. I mean, think about that. That's what we talked about all Good Friday and Easter. It was through his blood that he purchased this. It was through the cross that he bought your redemption. And when you begin to see this, it is transformative. That you're now free to live life live life For God. You're now free to live life for others, that you no longer are required to be a slave to your own ego. Are you beginning to see how this plays out in the context of the church? When you have brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, brothers and sisters adopted into the same family with the same father, do you realize how many lines that crosses? See, the truth is for many of you, with your experience with Christianity, it may seem distant or it may seem far off, but for many others in this room, your experience of Christianity is this one. Where you would think in your mind through who are your, who are your real friends and your real family? Who are those people that you would call when things go bad? And maybe that's brother and sister, mom and dad in the physical sense. But maybe it's brother or sister in Christ. Who are those people that you want to be with? Who are those people that you love? Who are those people that you care about in your life? Who are the people that matter to you? what we're being told is that the church is something entirely different than than anything the world has ever seen. Because people from all of these different backgrounds and experiences with all of these different individual ways in which we're broken have been brought into the exact same family, that we have the same Father, that we've been redeemed, set free from slavery, and now we're free to serve and love one another in Christ, serve and love our community in Christ. That God would set apart a people for his own pleasure. And how do we know that we've experienced that? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. It creates in us a praise, a worship. Stirs up something in our soul towards Christ. That you have experienced a new reality. Not just knowledge of how grace works. But your heart being captured by grace. Grace. It includes your mind, it includes your will, it includes your emotions, that everything is turned. It's that idea that when you understand that one life has been given for another, it touches something deep within us. It's the reason why tears come to our eyes when we think about, when we think about public servants putting their life on the line and even losing their life for the sake of protecting others. It's the reason why our hearts are captured even when we read fiction where one character lays down his life for others. I think of the Narnia series and that scene where Aslan Aslan is laid out on the stone table where he has given his life in exchange for Edmunds. Whatever your story is, (laughs) the reason it touches your heart and your soul the way that it does is because your heart is hearing an echo of the love that Christ has for you. It's enough to capture not just your imagination, but your mind and your will and your emotions. And so church, my heart is that as we explore these deep and heavy doctrines, we wouldn't get lost in the beautiful minutiae but that our hearts would be stirred in our love for Christ and our love for one another and our love for the communities in which God has placed us and that everything we do would be motivated by that transformative gospel. May God do in us what we're unable to do ourselves. Let's pray. Glorious God, We give you thanks. We give you thanks that in your son, Jesus, you've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We give you thanks that you chose us before the world was made to be your holy people, to be without fault in your sight. We thank you that you adopted us as your children in Christ and that you set us free by his blood. We thank you for forgiven sins. We thank you that you've made known to us your secret purpose to bring heaven and earth and all God's people and all things into unity in Christ Jesus. And God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who acts as the seal of your love on our hearts and the promise of our inheritance. So God, we give you all praise and all glory for the richness of your grace for the splendor of your gifts and for all the wonders of your love. God, would you remind us of the things that we so easily forget? And would you cause us to be only satisfied in the depth of the richness of your grace? And we pray all these things in the name of your Son.